What? Oh, my head. Squidge? Squidge? Oh, where's Squidge? Urgh. Back in the game, Jay. Come on. Okay, right. There's a computer here. Hmm, let's see. You must solve the puzzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Blah, 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 blah. Use the pad provided to... Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yada, yada, yada. Oh, hang on. Oh, hey, it's an emulator. Ah! Aha! A panel! Oh, cool. It's a Linux distro. I know these. Uh, da, 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 da. Skip to the end. Yep. Gotta love Linux. Now, where's Squitch? Oh. No idea what happened. Where am I? Jay? Okay, look around. Single room. Table. Laptop. Let's have a look. To escape this room, you must... I think it's hot on my heels. To escape this room, you must... Okay, let's see. Open document. .NET Core. Remote machines? Oh, Jay can do what I can. Let's see what we got. Okay. I've been here three hours and all I've got is Hello World. You know what? The hell with this. Well, that worked. Who really wants in? Right. Let's go find Jay. So give us one of your honourable mentions, Squidge. One of my honourable mentions is a little-known game on the PS2, which the name of it describes what I was sort of saying just then. The game's called Obscure. Oh, yes. So the Obscure game, that's quite an obscure horror survival game on the PS2 and Xbox at the time. It revolves around, essentially, again, spoilers, but whatever, uh, a scientist is experimenting with a certain extract from a flower, and um, it's it's basically turned a lot of things into these beasts, I suppose you could say, but the whole point of the game is they can't stand sunlight, and it revolves around a high school. So you've got a group of five people in a high school. There's always two people in a team, and you can choose who you want in the team. So each person's got different characteristics. It's kind of like Sweet Home sort of idea, where you can have different people in your team. And if you lose them people, you don't have them for the rest of the game. So you've got someone who can tell you what's left to pick up in a room. You get someone to tell you um, if there's anything puzzle-wise to do in a room. You've got someone who can run really fast. You've got someone who can lockpick. And you've got someone who can, I think it's like hack computers or something. Something like that. And they're just five teenagers and they, they go into school to try and find someone. Then they get locked in and they have to get out. But things start happening. The whole point of it is you don't get pistols and shotguns per se. You've got melee weapons most of the time. And um, most of the rooms that you go in, if you go over to where there's a window and shatter it, the enemies disappear. But the further you get into the game, it gets into nighttime. So your survival chances start to diminish quite quickly. 
and it, it's really good and it's actually co-op as well so you can play it two player one of the things that i would say about obscure is that i felt like i think when we were when it originally came out we were playing it mm-hmm. and i felt like the um the puzzles were quite obscure as well, yeah. uh, if you'll allow me to make that pun. Like, the first puzzle is not so much a puzzle, more of a go learn something about the real world. Yeah, because it's that map in the office, isn't it? You've got to get coordinates right. Yeah, exactly, right. And I remember there was one about, oh, th- this keypad only accepts a year entry, and you need to figure out what year, like, Beethoven was born in. And it doesn't tell you in the game. No. You get hints towards it in their files, don't you? You don't, you don't actually get spoon-fed the, the answer. You've got to try and use your noggin a bit. Yeah, yeah. And it's really, really odd when that happens. So it's a little different. So that's one of my honourable mentions. It's an interesting game for sure. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. I think as the series went on, it got more ridiculous. Mm. I mean, as I mean, if you think about it, as the Resident Evil series has gone on, that's become more ridiculous, you know? <laughs> so one of my honourable mentions is... Well, we just talked about it. The original Resident Evil game. No! Don't go! Hmm. You know, the OG one, the original title, the 1996, something like that, 1995, 1996 title that was, you know, 3D models walking around on a 2D background. Hmm. It, for what it was at the time when it was released, it was amazing. And you mentioned Sweet Home. I'm going to mention Sweet Home. <laughs> you know, it is essentially a remake of Sweet Home, but without the RPG elements. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Sweet Home is one of my other honorable mentions. So we'll come back to that in a moment. But like, I mean, yeah, the acting is goofy and the voice acting is also goofy because they had two separate sets of people play the characters. They had the live action actors and the voice actors and yes all of that is a bit goofy and all right yeah the setup is a bit weird and there was a podcast i was listening to the other day called i think it's Discworld desert islands or something Mm. the person that was being interviewed is a video games writer and she'd said you know there's this wonderfully stupid bit in the first resident evil game where you're reading someone's diary and they're dying in third person itchy tasty yeah the itchy tasty Mm. that whole bit is just absolutely, it's completely ridiculous. It's comic book style humor, but yeah. but it kind of fits with that situation because otherwise how are you going to tell in the second person that someone has died? But then, you know, for the time as well, it was one of the most atmospheric horror games. Mm. I remember going into school. Uh, this was high school, you know, year 11. So, eh, not year 11, year seven. So I was about 11, 12 years old. And talking to people who played it and who were saying it's the scariest game ever of not being able to get past this bit or that bit. Mm-hmm. And at the time it, it genuinely was the, the dogs chasing the main characters in the, in the first part. And then when you go back into the main hallway, if you open the door too many times, the dogs run in and get you. And mm-hmm. you know, that first zombie encounter. Yeah. Admittedly, the UK version didn't have the, frankly, comic head falling and rolling when the, mm. when there's a, so there's a zombie starts biting. You walk up to the first zombie for people who haven't played it and he's biting into someone and you hear this like ripping and tearing as he takes a chunk and pulls the skin back, at which point it cuts and you see a head fall to the floor and roll over, revealing basically half of the skin is missing and it's just bone and stuff, which is, 
the way it's presented is meant to be really creepy and scary, but looking back on it now, it is, it's a bit comical. Mm. But even so, in 1995 to 1997, that was a huge deal, which is why that was cut out of the UK release. But that first meeting with them is, is kind of scary. The whole setup, mm. if you think about it, is actually quite horrific and scary. So yeah, the original Resident Evil. But the problem is that you can't really play it now with the same, you can't have the same reaction. You know, um, there's a bunch of folks that I chat with online who are admittedly a little bit younger than I am. You know, they're in their twenties and they talk about, well, where should I start with Resident Evil? And I never tell them to start with the first one. A, because it's meant to be a self-contained story. It's not meant to have a sequel, but they shoehorned a sequel in because it did so well. Yeah. But also because there is no way that you could play the original PlayStation version of Resident Evil and still have the same reaction as someone from the mid nineties. Mm. But yeah, it's one of my honorable mentions because it kind of, it explicitly uses the term survival horror in the game. And it's one of the first games to do that. Mm. So it's used as like the canonical example. Definitely the OG example of it. Yeah, definitely. So what about you, Scrooge? What's, what's another honorable mention? Resident Evil Zero on the cube. Is it specifically the cube version? Yes. Okay, so none of the re-releases or the PCHD remaster or anything like that? Specifically the cube version. I mean, I think when it's originally released, it's the impact it has. Mm -hmm. So it was one of the... It's one of the earliest games that I can think of that the Cube had. When I got a Cube, I got Star Fox Adventures, Resident Evil 1 Remake, then I got Resident Evil 0, then Resident Evil 4. They were my first four games. Mm-hmm. And Resident Evil 0, it, um, you've got a Rookie Stars member and a grizzled, well, it doesn't look it, but a grizzled military veteran. And for a good half of the game, you've got to play as the Rookie. Her accuracy, well, not her accuracy, but the strength she has with the weapons, so her expertise, isn't as good as Billy's. So Billy gets more hard-hitting. So you give him slightly less powerful weapons, you give Rebecca more, but she's got more recoil. It takes slightly longer to reload, ever so slightly. She can mix herbs. Billy can push heavier things. I think it, it deserves an honorable mention because, I mean, despite the flack it gets, I mean, you start off on a train, and then at a set point, it starts moving, and you're on this train with these zombies and these bloody leeches. You still don't know what's going on. And then the first boss you encounter is a humongous scorpion. And when you do that, you're by yourself. You've got no backup. And if you haven't prepped enough, so give the person who's going up and going to that section of the train, if you haven't given them enough stuff, they're going to die. So there's a lot of like saving going back. There's a lot of replay if you don't know what's going on. There are a few jump scares, the music in it is very, especially for the parts that's meant to make you tense, is definitely tense. Along with Resident Evil 4 and 0, I'll say Resident Evil 1, along with Resident Evil 1, it innovated next-gen survival horror games for me. I'm not talking about sort of like Code Veronica, that's, that's different in itself. That was more annoying than scary. But Resident Evil 0 and Resident Evil 1 innovated the next step in survival horror. Unfortunately, it turned into action for the longest time, but it was sort of like the first one to go, right, this is a new generation of console. By no means is it sort of like outpowering the Xbox or the PS2, because it's not, considering the size of it as well. But this is what we can push this very small box to in the ways of graphics and atmosphere and gameplay and tension. 
You know, it's, I think it definitely deserves an honorable mention because it might not be the scariest survival horror, but it was one of the, one of the first next generation survival horror games. And I think if you deny Resident Evil Zero, then by right you have to deny Resident Evil 1 remake because it's on the same consoles. I mean, the two games have a very flimsy but interconnecting story. Rebecca's in both of them, you know, so there's that. They're, they're connected in a Resident Evil 1. There's a new telling of the story because it's a remake. Resident Evil Zero plays into that ever so slightly, you know, so that's that moving forward. I mean, the gameplay itself, it's it's a rather long game. Some of the puzzles are quite out there. But on top of survival horror, you've got to worry about two people instead of one, which ramps it up. So you've got to make sure that Rebecca's healthy and still alive and not poisoned and being eaten by something. You've got to make sure Billy's the same. And how it does that is it changes who's in danger at what parts of the game, because in equal parts, both characters are in danger and it's up to the other person to go save them. Spiral out, whatever you want to call it, you know. It shouldn't have to be now, how long it's been out, but whatever, you know. So there's, there's equal parts of, you know, Billy has to be quick as hell and he's not really built to be quick. So he's got to be quick as hell. In one part, Rebecca is without Billy and she's got to go through a section of a map where there's a, it's, it's enemy heavy. So she's got to like step up and be the one to proactively beast through them. Even though she might have, I don't know, your gameplay might have been, Billy takes him out more. Sure. So it's sort of, it's this balancing act of who does what or what part of the game. And because if, if, if you're playing it for the first time, you're going through and you don't know this. So it adds an, an element of the unknown to your survival horror as well. And it's, I think it's, it's very well placed as a survival horror game, despite what people say about it. And most of the time you'll find that a lot of the flack it gets especially what I've sort of researched and stuff, it was for the ports. So you've got like um, Xbox One, PS4, PC, HD remasters. A lot of the flat comes from that. Whereas if you play it on the cube back in the day, I mean, if you think about it, you control one person in the remake, Resident Evil 1 remake. In Resident Evil Zero, you could change the style of what the, your partner did. You could either have them as attacking or idle. So if you set them to idle and forgot and someone attacked you, you've got to change their way of how they do things. So you've got to set them to attacking or you use the C stick to keep them out of, out of reach of danger. So you've got to do that. You've got to move them while attacking or trying to move yourself. And it adds this extra layer of complexity, which shouldn't really be there, but is, you know, and it makes it more of a, it's a survival horror juggling act. If anything, especially the first time you play, it is a massive juggling act along with the, the puzzles you've got to solve and the enemies you've got to dispatch. It's adding a lot of things that wouldn't have worked in the first Resident Evil. So two players juggling stuff. There's no item box, so you've got to remember where you put stuff. I mean, it does show up on the map, but it adds a lot of stuff to it. I mean, you you definitely fight more sub-bosses in it than the first Resident Evil game, especially the where it is in the game. So you get maybe 15, 20 minutes into it and boom, you're fighting a giant scorpion. In Resident Evil, if you're talking about the remake, the first real sub-boss you fight is when you put all the death masks in. But before you get the fourth death mask, you got Yawn. So it's survival horror to a point where you get the fourth death mask, which is Yawn, the giant snake. Then you go put it in, you fight the owner of the mansion, who's the head crimson head. So you know he's going to be a difficult fight. And then you go out into the courtyard, and before you know it, you're fighting Vigil, 
you know, and then you've got Neptune who can bait, who, who can get into you, but that's a good, depending on how you are, that's a good maybe 40 minutes into the game. Resident Evil Zero, within the first 15 minutes, you're fighting a giant scorpion with very little other than a pistol and a shotgun. If you can pick it up, that holds two rounds. So if anything, it ramps up the survival need of it. You're really fighting against it. And it's, I think it deserves a place in honorable mention. I totally get that. Absolutely. Mm. We've mentioned Resident Evil a whole bunch. Hmm. And I actually mentioned this next honorable mention previously. Mention, 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 you know what I mean? Mm. Um, but none of these games, none of them would exist were it not for a kooky JRPG title based on an incredibly ridiculous movie. I still haven't seen from, it. <laughs> from the early 80s. We are indeed, of course, talking about Sweet Home. Mm. Now, Sweet Home is the game itself is a you could think of it as an action as sorry as a standard sort of JRPG with supernatural elements. It has you talked about in Obscure you have five characters and if someone dies it's permadeath and they don't come back. Mm. That is exactly how it works in uh, Sweet Home. If a character dies as a result of a puzzle, not necessarily in battle, they are gone. It affects your ending as well, doesn't it? Of course. Yeah, yeah. The, the whole point of the game is to investigate this house. You're after finding a fresco, which is kind of like a big painting of someone, um, because the house is haunted because of the fresco. And this is, this is all going on my knowledge of the film. And it's been a long time since I saw the film and the film is really kind of strange and experimental in places. Mm. But yeah, your five people have to go into the house. And like you said, with obscure, they've lifted this directly from sweet home where each character has a different speciality. And yeah, if you need someone who can do uh, picking locks and they die, you then have to find a different way around the house. And yeah, you can only have three people in your team, but you can switch between the teams Mm. and you're actively encouraged to switch between the teams whilst you're playing it. And so you might have a team that is, you know, these three people going over here and then it goes, meanwhile, and jumps over to the other team and you have to sort of make sure that they can survive as well. Yeah. So it's not just a case of picking the top three people for the bit that you're on because you need to make sure they all survive. Yeah. But yeah, all of the classic survival horror elements are there. It's puzzle-based, it's story-based, it's uh, lots of second-person story bits where you're reading novels or reading files, not novels, you're reading files and you're reading reports and you're you know, your characters are picking up information from some other third party. And it is very much like that. Other than that, it is a standard for the 1980s JRPG on the NES, that sort of line dancing, Squidge and I call it line dancing, when it's um, all of the player characters in a line during a JRPG style turn-based battle. So it's a line dancing RPG um, but with these wonderful elements where people die and, and if they die, it's permadeath, which was at the time a brand new concept, mm. you know, and if, yeah, there is no way to bring them back. So once they're gone, they're gone. It's an interesting set of uh, things that brought about Sweet Home. I'll link to it in the show notes, a link to the Wikipedia entry for the game. And I would recommend that if you're interested in survival horror, finding a, it wasn't released outside of Japan. So finding a fan translation version of the game is usually quite easy. Um, I wouldn't recommend downloading ROMs, but this is literally the only way to play it. So, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm not saying 
go and download ROMs. But if you really want to experience this game, either go learn Japanese <laughs> or, you know, you can try and find a fan translated version of the game. And then if you really want to take it that one step further, go watch the movie as well, because the decisions for what happens in the game are lifted directly from the movie. So you could say that no Sweet Home, the movie, no Resident Evil, no Resident Evil, no Silent Hill, no Silent Hill, no Dino Crisis, and so on and so on and so on. Hmm. These games would have probably still been made, but they wouldn't have had the impact or wouldn't take the format that they did. Yeah, it's just survival horror all the way down. Mm-hmm, definitely, yeah. <laughs> So what about your next honourable mention, Squidge? This is my final honourable mention before I start stretching the term of survival horror. (laughs) And it's a console version of a game. The N64 version of Resident Evil 2. Okay. For a couple of reasons. One, they added a couple of things. Well, I I know for a fact they added one thing. what What I thought at the time was one thing. That wasn't in the main game because I didn't find it in the main game. It was when you played the B game and you got to the PlayStation, you found the key to go through to get into the room where you'd normally find the uh, handle. Yes. Which is downstairs from the heliport. Now, what I never found in the original version is if you turn around and try and go back through the door you came from, zombies are coming. I never found that in the PS1 version, so I thought that was an exclusive for the longest time. But in that game, there's two things that I think you need to sort of remember with this honorable mention is one, they fit Resident Evil 2 in its entirety on an N64 cartridge, which was phenomenal. The only thing that I found that was different was when you're talking to Annette in game A, so you, the first time you meet her in the sewers and she shoots the gun out your hand. When you talk to Annette both times, so with Claire and with Ada, that encounter, you've got, I think it's it's just one of the characters' voices. It doesn't have both of them, so they only use one video. So they say, like, so the rats? Yes, exactly. So you hear the same voice in both games. I can't remember if it's Claire or Ada. So those rats were the carriers of the virus. But they use, like, the same video to save space, obviously. And the second thing is, and this is more of a gaming connoisseur thing, if you an example it, but you've got to remember, most of the time, you spend fighting the controls. Yes. (laughs) You either use the 3D controls for the stick where it changes whatever direction you are depending on what camera angle you're looking at, or use the D-pad and not use the stick at all. Either way, you are fighting the controls all the way through that game. So let me go a little bit into the technical details of what you were mentioning there, Squidge, about the game being two discs on the PlayStation. Now, obviously there were a lot of uh, duplicated things across both discs, but to start with, you've got two 600 to 750 megabyte CDs. They need to be put onto a, now I just use bytes and we're going to talk about bits, 120 bit cartridge, uh, 128 bit cartridge. And that gives you, I think it was 128 or maybe 64. Either way, it gives you around 30 megabytes of space. Mm. That's it. So you've got to take this gig and a half of data and get it into 30 megabytes. If you're at all interested in how they did it, I will link to it. There's an article on Gamma Sutra, which is um, a video game industry website all about 
what we call a post-mortem. So when a game comes out or when some software comes out, then someone will do a post-mortem report on what went well, what didn't go well. And it's a very public one from one of the five developers of the N64 port. And he goes into specifically how they did it. And part of it is like uh, dropping the video sample size. So all of the videos that you see in the game, they're in less quality than the PlayStation version. Uh, Adding support for, but not requiring the extra four meg RAM cartridge Mm. that was incredibly expensive for the time. So if you drop one of those and you get more stuff and faster load times and stuff, and it's just the amount of effort that went into it is astronomical. And I will put a link to it in the full show notes. So if you are listening, you got this far and you want to learn more, click through into the show notes link in your pod catcher. And then in those show notes, there will be a link to that. So definitely check that out. Well, it's only a little thing, but from what I can remember, they added two things extra. One of these I never found. Right, because I was just playing the game as is. I, I spent more time on the N64 version than any other version of Resident Evil 2. Okay. Um, one of the things that they added was you could change the color of the blood. You couldn't do that on the, the PS1 version. You just couldn't. So it wasn't just a straight port. And the other one was the extra costumes that you got when you got the special key from Brad. The one for Claire was completely different. I'd never found it before. It's like a purple. I want to say almost a biker suit, like a leather biker suit. Yeah, like a, a platform-specific thing. Hey, if you want to see Claire yeah. in this outfit, you have to buy this version of the game. You only get games where, like back in the day when you had 360 and PS3, if you get the game on the 360, you get this costume for free as a free download, but on the PS3, it'll be a different costume with a version exclusives. That was an exclusive for that one. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not too sure about Leon's costume, but I know Claire, she had like a purple leather all-body suit. And I never found that. I only found that just by looking up Resident Evil on the N64, just occasionally, you know, for a little bit of nostalgia, looking up videos and stuff. And I watched this guy and he put it on and I saw I had to pause the video and turn the brightness up a bit because the N64 was a little bit darker anyway, all the games, even Mario, a little bit darker on your TV. And I turned the brightness up and I was watching him and he was in this purple battle suit that I'd never seen before. (laughs) But she has this purple, like, battle suit. So watching that in like the cutscenes in the game, not the FMVs and stuff, and complete the game, what have you, it glued me to the game again after so many years. It's not just a straight port, they added some stuff as well. And, I can't believe I only just thought of this now, the X-Files. Extra bit of story that you find all over the place, there's like 17 or 20 of them. Yeah, they'd added those because the majority of people who would buy it on the N64 it was presumed wouldn't have a PlayStation. Mm. So you need to have some background information about what's actually happening so that players who, like I said, didn't have access to a PlayStation and didn't know what um, Resident Evil 2 was a sequel to or hadn't had a chance to play it would know what the background information is. But to be fair, most of the background information is explained to you. A deeper lot of it, really. Yes, definitely. For people who are into that. So yeah, um, the N64 port of Resident Evil 2, which by itself is an extraordinary feat. Mm. Just from the ground up, it's just phenomenal. What can be managed by tweaking a few settings, essentially. Sure, yeah. Sure. Just unreal. Yeah, so that's my third unreal mention. I've got two that's going to stretch it after this. So uh, my third one is uh, Silent Hill. As much as the series went off the rails in the second one, 
with, was it the second one with the dog that was controlling everything? <laughs> that was the secret dog ending, yeah. Yeah, so. <laughs> uh, that's meant to be the canon ending as well. I mean, serious. As much as it went completely off the rails, hmm. the very first game. I mean, I think you you said earlier on maybe it's not so much survival horror, but for me, de- the first one definitely is. After that, it went off the rails and then became like creepy horror. You know, hmm. oh, this guy's got a gigantic pyramid for a head. Oh, isn't that creepy? But yeah, Silent Hill is definitely one of those for me. The original first game. Now, this game, if you were to play it now on a modern TV with upscaling mm. and you know we talked recently about the playstation classic if you were to put it onto that that game would look horrendous it's sort of these a lot of these games it's survival horror in the the context of when it was first played of course yeah yeah, yeah. like yeah. um what's great about silent hill is it has that fog right and the fog was there literally because the playstation could not draw things further away from the character than where the fog starts so the idea was obscure all of that so you can't see it and then when you move towards it you're a little bit closer so then it can be drawn on screen by the hardware Mm. and it was a genius move by the folks who made that game absolutely genius imagine you're walking around this creepy school and you can't see very far because the fog is is covering everything up and you don't know where the enemies are they're gonna jump out at you at some point and then there's this crackly radio sat in your pocket going it tells you that there's an enemy nearby Mm. It's absolutely just a stroke of genius to have these things because you're walking around and you've got this and you don't know where that enemy's going to jump out from, but you know that there's going to be something there. So then you start getting really antsy about what is it? What could it be? What's going on? And then you realize that, yeah, your main character, I think you've mentioned it before, Squidge, when we were talking to the arcade attack dudes, it's he's an everyman. He's yeah. not so good at defending himself because he's not very good at defending himself and so the bullets fire wildly and he's not very good at reloading and he kind of wobbles a bit when he runs and stuff because he's he's under this psychological attack in a spoiler alert place where it may not actually be happening you know Mm. and that whole thing and then you get through the whole game and then it's like yeah, that didn't happen, or did it? Yeah, and it's also the fact that if you read all the lore and everything and you go a bit deeper into it trying to find stuff out, you find out that it's every person that goes into Silent Hill, it moulds to their experiences. Of course. So all of the enemies that are in the game are something that the little girl in it, not Cheryl, I should know the name. Anyway, it's the the, the little girl who's like the ghost in it. It's all through her experiences, so she was... Like, for example, she's scared of the boiler in the school. And then when you get to the the sub-basement where you fight one of the bosses in the game, the boss has exactly the same sound as the boiler. A lot of the enemies in game will grab you, and that directly uh, links to the the cult members, the, the adults who would drag her all over the place trying to take her places to do stuff. It directly linked to her frame of mind. And the further you go into it, the the town sort of molds itself around the person who goes into it to make their nightmare a very personal one. Mm-hmm. And you, you don't sort of realise that, especially not in the first one, it's hard to get that. But when you get like to one, two and three, the games, you, you figure out that Silent Hill, if it was a different main character, it'd be a completely different experience. Oh, definitely. Yeah. And that's that I think is one of the most scary parts about it is that, or rather one of the most unsettling parts about it is because this could be literally happening to anyone. Yeah. 
It's definitely a good one. It's Silent Hill. I mean, there's there's lots of other stuff there in it. Like for me personally, um, I'm really hazy on this memory, but I'm pretty sure I either didn't pick up the radio or I turned it off. Oh yeah, it's totally doable. It's totally doable to switch the radio off. So I was getting attacked from all sides, and I didn't even realise I turned it off. So I thought the game was monumentally hard. Exactly right. Exactly. So then, what's your second to last honourable mention, Squidge? So, it's actually Heart of Darkness on the PS1. Oh. You know one where the little kid gets the power of light and he, he runs through and what have you? Yep. The reason why I call it a survival horror is for the beginning part. You know where you're thrust into this world where things can kill you and you've got to do certain things on certain screens and you can easily mess up all the time. It took me about easily 70 attempts before I got through that section and it always made me tense as hell and it scared the living daylights out of me and I didn't survive. <laughs> so stretching the term survival horror, it scared the living pants off of me and I couldn't survive it until I until I kept going at it. Every time I went on it, it didn't get any easier. You know what you're someone about, don't you? Sure, yeah. I know, yeah, I know Before you get that seed later on. That gives you the yep. light power. Yeah, those things chasing after you. I mean, that's like from the start. The minute you land, those things are chasing you and you've got to be, you got to know what you're doing and be accurate or you get grabbed. And that's it. Mm-hmm. So that's, I mean, my last one is going to stretch it to its limit, but that's sort of a, it really scared the <laughs> out of me <laughs> when I was a kid. For a PS1 title, that really did. But that was, that was another one where it was like static backgrounds and you only had the models running along. And stuff. It wasn't even 3D models, not really. So it's kind of like Rayman, but with horror thrown in, and it wasn't cutie at all. So the opposite of Rayman. I couldn't pick it up for about four months, and I was determined to do it, despite how much I was shaking while playing it. Plus, you got past it, so I was determined to get past it myself. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's sort of like um, a stretching it honourable mention, I think. Fair enough. So my second to last honourable mention is one that has taken a little while to get to. Um, and we mentioned it on the PlayStation Classic episode. And that is uh, Parasite Eve. You know, it never came out over here in the UK. It's a video game based on a movie, but it isn't like the movie. You know, like when you get like, uh, I suppose Street Fighter is a bad example because you don't really, Street Fighter, the movie, the video game. But you know what I mean? When you... It doesn't happen so much now, but you used to get right up until the mid 2000s, mid 2010s, I feel like Iron Man, the video game, the movie, the movie, the video yeah, game. There was always a video game that was rushed to come out before the movie came out or like in tandem. And that tends to not happen these days because the timelines for making movies is getting so short mm-hmm. that it's too short to actually produce a, a video game for. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Parasite Eve never actually saw release in the UK. For reasons we go into in the PlayStation episode. Yeah. So if you want to learn that, go back to that. Um, but it's actually based on a movie, based on a book. And the most interesting part about it is the book is hard science fiction. So it's science fiction. You know what I mean? It goes into like the details of how this could actually happen, but with a very big dollop of this can't happen because it is actually fiction. And these are the reasons why it can't happen. Yeah, it's the, it's the kind of book you've got to put on a lab coat beforehand. Oh, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, definitely. The book is really quite good. The movie, <laughs> not so much. <laughs> the, the reasons why we're giggling at that go back to the Mega Drive, uh, the PlayStation um, episode. We, we, we explain why we're giggling at that. So, yeah, it's definitely worth 
it's worth a giggle. If you've got an hour and three quarters to spare and you have the DVD, definitely give it a watch. It is not the best movie in the world, but it is, it was filmed during that era that like Ring and the first few Grudge movies were made in the Mm -hmm. 98 to 2000s, that kind of era. So the game itself is based on a story that happens in the universe of the book, right? Other than Eve, it's not characters from the book. It's not characters from the movie, but it is a very, very good RPG survival horror, which is something you will hardly ever hear of. The game is like an extended story from the same universe, isn't it? Yeah, it's... um. <laughs> well, it, it is really, isn't it? So the reason I was laughing is because I don't really want to put it this way, but I have to, um, because it was effectively... The, none of the games have been authorized by the author author of the original book. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. So they're effectively fan fiction. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's an amazing story. The first one is really good. Parasite Eve 2, I can't remember that much of it, but I know that Squidge has played it an awful lot. It's more action-based. And I think maybe because for those who, who, who are new to the podcast and don't realize that there's also a blog, I did start a series that I want to come back to. I started on the book was going to write about the movie, was going to write about the first game, and then maybe see if I can get Squidge in to help me write about the second and um, I think third for PSP. Oh, third birthday. Never completed that. It's just it's just hard as balls, that game. Yeah, the, the problem is that it, it falls into that gambit again of becoming ridiculous and becoming action. Half the time, because it's on the PSP, you're fighting the controls on that one. I can say that for definite, you are certainly fighting the controls. <laughs> and it's not a case of, because there is like, experience and levels and stuff and finding stuff. It's not a case of replaying levels to get higher, higher, more experience to level up. You replay the same levels, they level up with you. So you, you've got to really just push through the entire game and just keep playing it and playing it. I think I read somewhere, I was trying to get tips when I was first playing it, and I was reading this guy's tips and he gave me some really good tips and he said, essentially, the way to make the game easier is to complete it twice. Oh, right. He said, then once you complete it twice, if you've done it right, you'll unlock this certain weapon, which gives you more than a fair fighting chance, so you're not going to die as often, which for me was every 10 seconds. But he said, the easiest way to play the game is to have completed it twice. That doesn't help. No, it really doesn't. <laughs> it, it just said it, it is helpful. You know, It does help when you get there, but I understand going through the main game is difficult. And I thought, but you just said to complete it twice to make my first playthrough easier. Well, that's what I thought I read. You know, How, how does that help? How... how <laughs> But yeah, the, the third game, you're fighting the controls as well as the main, the, the actual game and the premise of it's a bit out there as well. Like I said, you know, by the time you get to the third game, your premise is all out there. Mm. <laughs> okay then, Squidge, what about your final honourable mention? What is that? This is stretching it to its limit. Absolute limit. The, the sense of survival horror. Am I expecting, like, an elastic band to snap and smash me in the face? Possibly. Hang on. I'm hoping the elastic band doesn't snap. (laughs) But, as I say this, it might give you clues, so you might be able to guess it. So, it wasn't on this console to begin with, but it was a port. It wasn't the entire game. There was only ten stages, but it showed you over multiple chapters. It originated on the PC. The PC version runs at 70 frames per second. It's set during the war. The Jaguar version, which is the one I'm on about, has got more weapons than the original version. I know exactly which one you're on about, and I'm writing it down now. Do you want to tell the listeners what I'm on about? If you know, listener, let us know which clue gave it away, right? Which numbered clue gave it away? And then, Squidge, if you've got any more clues, keep going. 
I mentioned in a podcast prior to this that the sounds used to scare the crap out of me. Okay, that's the most obscure of all the clues. I wrote down Wolfenstein 3D. Correct. The game is pure survival, and if you're like me, once you got past the third stage, you were fighting the zombies, which scared the living out of me. Yeah, so to put that into context, <laughs> right, when that game came out, 1991... Was it? What the Yeah, yeah, the Wolfenstein 3D came out in 1991. When that game came out, I was, what, six, seven years old? I was five. Yeah, for a five-year-old, if you're told... You know, because we, we, that's the thing as well. When you're, when you're, when you're playing a game like that, you absorb yourself. A first person shooter, mm. you become the protagonist, which is why in Half-Life, the protagonist doesn't speak because they can't speak for you, right? Which is why all of the dialogue is very, very, very carefully crafted such that you aren't the one speaking and such that the dialogue that is given to you doesn't require you to answer back. And so in a first-person shooter, at least not the fast-paced Call of Battlefield or whatever. You know what I mean? Battlefield <laughs> of Duty. There we go. Battle of Duty. That's the one. Battle of Duty. Battle of Poop. Um, In the Battle of Poop games, it's so fast and the games are ending so quickly that it doesn't matter. But in a game that is very slow burn, like Wolfenstein 3D, like Doom, like Half-Life, like Sin, like all of these, uh, Duke Nukem 3D, although Duke Nukem 3D is a bit more of a silly take on it, you eventually put yourself in the position of that character. Mm. So as a four, five, six, seven, eight year old, whether we should have been playing it or not. Well, no, the game was an 18 rating and you started playing it when you was eight. You got it when you were eight and I was sat there with you. Yeah. So as someone who's five, six, seven, eight, nine years old, whether you should have been playing it or not in a position where you haven't really been exposed to any kind of horror stuff so much at that age, you put yourself in that position. And then when somebody goes, yeah, these are zombies. So they're going to shoot you, but then you find out the zombies are the whole, the creatures that feast on the flesh. So then you start going, oh crap, he's not just going to shoot me. He's going to bite me. What's that going to look like? And it's more, again, that psychological hit of what is this going to be like? Plus the Jaguar version, but there was only, I think it was either 10 or 15 stages because mm-hmm. of the, what was, what you could store on the cartridge. You had like two or three stages from one chapter. There were six chapters originally and you only had two or three stages. So you had one stage to get you into it one stage to get into, in, into the action, and then a boss stage. Mm-hmm. And you had three or four of them on the, on the Jaguar version. And to go from trying to escape to getting to the main point where you're trying to blitz through to get to the escape point, and then fighting a giant guy with two chain guns, that the minute you open the door, he yells, you, which scares the crap out of you, right? And there's not much room to move. Remember, this is Jaguar pad, so it's really hard to strafe. To go from that to zombies shooting guns out of the chest. Mm-hmm. And you're six. Oh, of course, definitely. That's the equivalent of letting a, an eight-year-old watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> it's not going to go down well, and you get some very awkward questions, especially <laughs> after the first episode. But yeah, that was the one that really stretched it. Technically, thinking now, when you said that, I should have said Alien versus Predator on the Jaguar. <laughs> I think they've got like joint thing, because Alien versus Predator makes more sense. It's like joint honourable mention. I feel like AVP is slightly more... If you want to talk about survival horror, then yeah, AVP is slightly more survival horror. But yeah, I totally get where you're going. So my final honorable mention is one that I never really played all the way through. We'll continue down this uh, route of giving clues. Now, that's obviously not a clue that will help anyone who's not me. Come on, see if I can figure this out. 
It was a PC game. Right. First person shooter. Okay. Definitely horror. Okay. I would say survival horror psychological horror. Right. I would say experimentation. I would say little girl. I would say haunted. You just give it away. I would say super spooky, um, experimental, psychological, not psychological, psychic powers. I would say the the title has the following letters in it and not in this order. A, R, F, and E. What is it, Squidge? M-O-U-S-E. It's fear. Yes. The minute you said little girl, I got it. I, I, I was kind of guessing towards it when you said psychological. Yeah. I, I just thought you were explaining it and I thought that could be Half-Life. No, it's not. It could be, because when you said first person, I thought, well, that's any of the Resident Evils out the window. Then you said little girl, that's fear, straight away. I don't know of any other PC psychological first person shooting experimental game that has it. <laughs> also, by the way, if you haven't played fear, don't look... Well, you can if you want, but if you look up the story of Fear on YouTube, it gets really disturbing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I wouldn't look into that. I don't just mean the story of the first one. I meant the story of all three Fear games. The sort of universe that it lives in. Yeah, it's a it's a very disturbing game. I would say it's very. Um, like I say, only I only got part way through it. There's a part in the game where you approach a ladder and you get to climb down and the whole bit up to that ladder. It's like, be really careful. There's some creatures in there and they can kill you and it's going to, it's going to jump out. And it's going to eat you. and It's going to be around the front and you got to shoot it and you special ops and you've got these super duper Uber weapon and you were, and you're like, okay, fair enough. Have you made your way through and it's been doing jump scares and building the suspense and nothing's happening. You know, you've not shot any enemies. It's maybe five minutes of just running around and, manipulating your way around this whole area and you approach the ladder and you push a button to attach yourself to the ladder to climb down the ladder and obviously to climb down the ladder character spins round when the character spins round what there's the enemy right in front of you and then she disappears Mm. but that whole idea that she's been following you the entire way and you didn't realize puts you right on edge what if she's there now what if she's there now yeah but whereas before that if you look at certain parts you see fractions of glimpses of her and if you if you don't know that point before you start it you think can i just see something nah and you just keep going you just put it out of your mind it's that fast that you don't take it in and then the next mm. time you play it, you go holy cow it's actually telegraphing it to me what in the heck was that because you know that you've got to look out for this girl it's a good one is fear i mean the the equivalent of trying to get the same impact these days as we had as youngsters playing survival horror when we actually lived through the emergence of it and how it grew so we've got that aspect of it. The way to get that same sort of feeling, if you get a survival horror game or even a horror game, play it at midnight or when it's really dark, really late at night. Try and have it so it's going through headphones. And the best way to do it is try and do it where there's someone else in the house. So if you react, you've got to be quiet because that makes it 10 times as hard. Trying to jump and scream, but without screaming, is really difficult and it makes it harder. I just think it improves the experience. It's like the alien isolation stuff. Again, putting that on microphone mode, so you have to back away from your microphone or disconnect your microphone or something. That's cheating. It is, it is. 
Yeah, so that was our discussion on um, survival horror games. And I think from now on, I think one of the questions that we have for people the next time they're on the show is maybe give me three of your favorite survival horror games and why, mm. so that they can do a similar sort of thing. I think that would be a cool idea. We'll have to see what people want to talk about when they come on, though. But I think that would be a cool idea. We don't have to do it with everyone because, you know, some people don't play survival horror and that's fine. But I think we should totally do something like that. Yeah. Well, like I've said before, uh, let us know what you thought of the survival horror games that we picked as the top three and our five um, honorable mentions each, either by leaving a comment on the website. So if you're listening on your podcatcher, click the link in your podcatcher or press the link in your podcatcher to the full show notes, have a read through those, leave some comments in there, or maybe send us you know, a message on Twitter. Our DMs are open, so you can just Tweet, you know, tweet directly at us without everyone else seeing, or maybe just, you know, at Waffling Tailors on Twitter. You could do the same thing on Facebook as well. Just hit that search button up at the top, type in Waffling Tailors, or indeed go to wafflingtailors.rocks and there's a button on every page that takes you through to it. And all I have to really say now is uh, thank you, Squidge, for sitting and talking spoopy games with me. And don't think about the thing that's stuck right behind you. I don't mean the list, I mean you, dear. There's something behind you. Oh, God. I don't want to turn around now. It's your chair. Give up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just looking at me. It's a chair. Don't panic. Catch you again next time, Squidge. All right. See you later. Bye-bye. Oh, and just as a, a final parting thing, if you want a really, really bad advert for a slightly action-style horror survival game, look for the original advert on YouTube for Alien vs Predator and the Jaguar. Oh, that was terrible. That's yeah. my parting shot. I'm just going to leave it at that. If you really want to look for it, look for it. Intro music is Behind the Lines by Ian Sutherland. Outro music is I Need You, Watashi no Sabate by GH. Spoiler break music is Spectrum Subdiffusion Mix by Phonics. Palette cleansing music is Breathe Deep, Breathe Clear by Siobhan Gay. See the show notes for more details. The Waffling Tailors podcast is a proud member of the J&J Media Network. To find out more about J&J Media, head over to jayandjay.media or check the show notes for a link.